Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Ooh, so I'm going to read the Bible passage for today, and we've been doing the One Hit Wonder series. So I'm going to be reading the whole second letter of John, all 13 verses. <laughs> all right, second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Cool. Thank you, Kiralee. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Luke. (laughs) Why don't you take a moment, say hello um, to the people around you. Um, and tell them your favourite type of cat. <laughs> You'll see. It'll, it'll... Alrighty, excellent. We've all uh, we've all talked about cats now. The um, my my sermon tonight for those who like taking notes is called the Purple Cat. So let's get into it. I uh, I have a nephew. He's th- well, I have two, but the one I want to talk about is three. His name is Micah, um, and he is. He's the best. 
Like I, I love this little kid. He is just everything he does is amazing. Except one thing. He's a filthy liar. <laughs> so he uh recently he was at our house and he um we're just kind of hanging out in the lounge and he says to Jasmine, Honey Jazz, come out onto the deck and he did like, I want to show you something. Like he didn't say it that eloquently, but obviously it's like, come on, come on, come on, let's go out here. So they're out on the front veranda and I sort of I'm sitting inside watching and he's pointing up like at the roof. He's like, look, look, look. Jasmine's like, okay, it's a roof. And he's like, no, look. And I was like, okay, he's obviously, you know, he's very excited about something here. So he comes back in um, and I sort of say, oh, Micah, like, what was on the roof? And he goes, there's a cat on the roof. And Jasmine's like, and I was like, okay, let's see how, let's see how, uh, how committed he is. And I was like, oh, was there really a cat on the roof? He's like, yeah, 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 there's a cat on the roof. And I was like, okay, I'm going to test him. And, um, and so I thought, okay, here's a good question. Micah, what colour was the cat on the roof? And he'd been learning colours, so I thought, you know, he should be able to answer this. And he had that kind of really, you know how toddlers have just a really deep look of concentration when they're thinking? It's just like their whole face screws up and they sort of they look inwards into their brain to try and like, mm, what colour was it? And he's thinking and he goes, they're like, okay, the cat, it was a purple cat. <laughs> I'm like, okay, clearly there wasn't a cat. But what that was, I thought that would be funnier, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I guess I did, didn't I? Oh, well. Um, <laughs> he believed in this cat. Like he, for all intents and purposes, he believed there was a purple cat on the roof. Like he was adamant there's a purple cat on the roof. And there wasn't a purple cat on the roof. But what had happened is a few weeks before we'd been at my parents and at my parents' house, they have a cat. Um, allegedly, they have a cat. We've never, no, no one really sees it because anytime anyone comes over, it just goes on the roof. And so every time there's a family thing, my parents, Micah is looking around trying to find the cat on the roof. And so I think he kind of just put it together and said, oh, there's family here, so there must be cats on the roof. Like, that's what happens. That's family events is cat hunting. And he was learning colours and he knew, I guess he knew purple was a colour. So he's like, well, I'll put that bit of information with this bit of information and I'll bet there's, there's my convincing story. There's a purple cat on the roof. So he pulled on a few true threads to create a story about a purple cat, which was at best a half-truth. More accurately, it's a filthy lie. But that's okay. He's a toddler. Um, but we're not. And sometimes, I think, in the Christian life, we sometimes grab half-truths from different places. We pull on different threads to create a picture maybe of who Jesus is or a picture of what the church is supposed to be or a picture of who God the Father is that isn't really true. It's based on bits and pieces of the truth, but it's not accurate. We find ourselves believing for weeks, months, decades, even in what I'll call purple cats. Imagination in children matters, but truth matters more. And this letter, this second John letter, is really getting to the heart and dealing with matters of truth. It was written generally, we believe, by the Apostle John, the Disciple John, the one that wrote 
the book of John and also 1 John and 3 John and the book of Revelation. And it was written probably right towards the end of his life. He's 80 or 90 years old at this point where he's writing this letter. And you'll notice probably at the start, it says it's, it's written to the elect lady and her children. And this is one of two things. It's either a literal lady and her children and maybe like a, a, a house church or it's the elect lady as in a church and the, the people who go to that church. It was written probably during a time of persecution, so that's why it's kind of coded and there's no real names in it. That's kind of what they tend to believe about the letter. But either way, it doesn't really matter if it's written to an individual or a church. It's written to Christians. And we're Christians, so we can learn something out of this book. So tonight, we're going to look at four ideas. We're going to look at loving in truth, We're going to look at celebrating truth. We're going to look at defending truth. And we're going to look at walking in truth. And we're going to sort of pull on a few of the threads from this letter. We're going to see where they go. And we're going to see how this all works together in the end. Let's pray. Father God, we see in your son Jesus the truth. And Lord, we pray tonight that as we talk about truth, that we measure everything we hear against you. Lord God, I pray that you would move, that it would be your words that people hear that land, not mine. And I pray that together, as we wrestle with your word and your truth, you would bring us into a greater understanding of who you are and who we are in response to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first point, love in truth. You'll probably notice in the first few verses of this letter that John writes the word truth a number of times. He says that he loves the audience of the letter in truth. I love in truth. He says, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So in that first greeting, he's really emphasizing truth. And you'll notice a couple of times he pairs it with love. So he says love in truth, truth and love. He's sort of, to John, those ideas, those virtues, those ideals seem to be linked, that truth and love are things that go together. And it seems that John believes that something that Christians are able to do is love one another in truth. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that kind of idea, you know, speak the truth in love. We love each other in truth. But what does that actually mean? That's what I've been pondering the last few weeks. So I'm going to kind of give you my best go at answering that. And and then you can go away and you can wrestle with the scripture and you can have your best go at answering it too. And then together as a community, we'll work it out. Does that sound good? I think in our culture, we would rather emphasize love as the greatest ideal, the greatest virtue, the great desire of our hearts is love. After all, love is love. 
And I think sometimes, culturally speaking, socially speaking, even in our relationships, the truth can sometimes get in the way of love. We might not see the truth as loving. And so we hold love up here as the great thing. And truth is kind of here. It's important, but it's not as important as love. As the Beatles say, all you need is love. Maybe I should have called my sermon that. But it seems that it's based on this letter that the Apostle John seems to think that love and truth are equally important, that they go together, in fact. And on the other hand, sometimes we have, you can see in churches or, or groups where, the, where truth is the great pursuit and love is left to the side. And what you get then is brutality because truth without love is damaging. We can't handle it. And so there's this tension that we get to work out how to walk in, this kind of this scales that need to be balanced between love and truth. So how do we do that? I think one of the keys is in verse 2. Nick, if you want to just chuck that up for me. It says, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That's what he's saying is, so I love in truth, comma, there's a little aside, because of the truth that abides in us. So there's something about truth being in us that allows us to love in truth. And further down in verse 9, John also talks about this idea of abiding. And if you've read John's gospel, you know that abiding in Christ, abiding is something that he talks about being in, being in truth, being in love. So let's have a look in in the book of John in chapter 15. Verses 9 to 13, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus invites us to dwell within his love. The way that he says we do that is by keeping his commandments. So by obeying the truth of his commandments, we get to abide in his love and we remain in his love. And then he gives us a definition of what love is. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this is my best take for how we love in truth. So firstly, Christians are to love in truth. That's sort of, that's a thing that Christians do. Secondly, Jesus is the truth. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if Jesus is the truth and we're to love in truth, then we're to love by being in Jesus, by abiding in him. And then Jesus gives us a definition for how we love. And he says, we love by laying down our lives. There's no greater love. So I think Christ here, it's, it's the antithesis of society's prevailing values, which are, I think, falsehood and self-centeredness, because Jesus is truth and love in person. 
So the way we love in truth is by modeling what Jesus did, which is laying down our rights, our lives, our preferences for the benefit of others because that's what Jesus did for us. So to love in truth means to lay down your life. Bit heavy. But what that does in your life and more so what it does and starts to do in the life of people around you, what it does in a community, if everyone is laying down their own rights and their own preferences and preferring one another and loving one another in, what, in, in that way, what that does is it causes, I think, much celebration. It actually causes joy. It actually causes us not to be sad because we had to love people and lay down what we want. It actually causes us to grow more and more into the heart of who Jesus is actually calling us to be. And so the second thing I want to talk about is celebrating truth. And this is just kind of, I guess, a little bit of a sidebar on just one verse here. But verse 4, John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. I rejoiced greatly. So here's a man, 80, 90 years old. He's seen all of his fellow disciples and apostles that started the early church and that were with Jesus. They've all died now. They've all been killed quite horribly. He's probably seen a few generations of Christians go through. He's starting to see the damage that persecution is doing to the church, but also how the gospel is spreading. He's one of those people that's been in church for a long time and he rejoices greatly to hear that others are walking in the truth. Something about that struck a chord with me because I don't know how well I celebrate other people's faith. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about two sons and you've probably heard it. And there's a father and he has two sons and he's a wealthy man and his, his son... One of his sons comes to him and says, basically, Father, I can't wait for you to die. Can I have my inheritance now? Imagine going and doing that to your parents. Not nice. But this father says, okay, take your half of the inheritance, go. And he does. He goes and he, and he wastes it and he spends it on getting drunk and he spends it on prostitutes and he just kind of does all this stuff with his money and wastes the whole lot and he ends up in a situation where the only way he can survive is by sitting in a pig pen, feeding pigs and eating the food that the pigs are eating. So it's a fair fall from grace. And this son remembers his father and he goes, well, even the servants at my father's house get looked after. So what I'll do is I'll go back, I'll grovel, I'll get on my knees and the father will, will welcome me back and he'll... he'll you know, employ me as a servant or something, but it will be better than this. Whose baby is that? <laughs> it's mine. That's okay. Um, so this son, he starts going home. And it says that the father, while the son was still on the way off, the father saw the son. And he hiked up his 
skirts or whatever they wore and ran and ran and ran. And he ran to meet the son and he grabbed him, he embraced him, he kissed him, he brought him home and he threw a big party. All fantastic. But there's this other brother. I'm just going to read what Jesus said. It said, Meanwhile, the other brother, the oldest son, he was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Sometimes, and I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I'm probably more like the older brother in that story. We find it hard to celebrate anyone other than us. Let's be real. We like it when people are about us. We like it when people tell us we've done a good job. We like it when, when we're the, even if you're introverted, you still like it when people notice you and what you're doing and, and tell you about it. We do. And yet what John does and what this teaching of Jesus does is it tells us it's not about you. I rejoice because I heard that other people were walking in faith. Last week we had two baptisms. That was joyful. That was good. That should have got us excited. Let's never be like that older brother. Let's never stop being excited when other people come alive. Yeah? Let's never not be excited when someone younger than you that's maybe been a Christian for, for less time seems to be getting more attention or more opportunity, all those things. Let's not be that. But let's celebrate one another. Let's celebrate what God's doing in each other's life. We celebrate the truth. Why celebrate truth? Why care? Well, I think if we start to celebrate the truth, if we, if we start to celebrate what Jesus is doing in people's lives, if we start to celebrate the good that God is doing, then we will feel more strongly about defending and preserving truth because we see what it does. John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So there's a, there's a particular false teaching that John's addressing here. And it's this, it was a belief that Jesus couldn't really have been God if he was in the flesh. If he was a, a human, there was this prevailing belief that things that were matter, as in like solid things you could touch, feel, the human body was evil and spirit was good. 
And so either Jesus was matter and therefore not good, or he was spirit, but therefore he didn't come in the flesh. So this was kind of this, um, this belief that was, it was a prevailing philosophy of the time and it was creeping into the church. And so John's written this letter because he's like, no, enough. That's not what we believe. That's not who Jesus is. Enough. And he even goes so far, he says these people are deceivers. He says they're antichrists, which basically just means they're opponents of Christ. They're in opposition to Christ. And he says, don't greet these people. Don't have them in your home. Don't even fellowship with them. Because if you do, you're joining with them. It's a strong word from John. He's adamant. He is convinced that the truth is something worth being even a little bit rude for. Don't have them in your home. Oh, it's not very hospitable, John. And yet that's what he says. Why? That's a good question. Let's answer that. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have worked for. Some versions say what you have worked for, but may win a full reward Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And there's a few kind of takes on what that goes on ahead means. Like what does it mean to go on ahead and leave Christ, not abide in Christ? So I'll give you a few of those. Perhaps it means people who rush onto and into every new idea, every new job doctrine every kind of you hear a a preacher say something and you've never heard it in the bible but you're like oh that sounds good that suits me I'm going with that one perhaps I think this is just as much a warning for us now as it was for the church back then perhaps it's a warning for a few types of Christians and I'm gonna gonna name a few things and we'll just see how we go with that But I think this is a warning for the Christian who looks at the Bible as antiquated and out of touch and not relevant and that it needs reimagining or reinterpreting. This is a warning for the Christian who asks the same question that Satan asked Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Is God really good? Is essentially what that question is asking. This is a warning for the Christian that says, I agree with Jesus, what he said was great, but that Paul guy, no, he's a bigot. He's sexist, I don't like him. This is a warning for the Christian who disregards what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I wonder if we're so hell-bent on asking the question, what does this mean for me? How does this fit with what I think? That we don't ask the most important question, which is what does this mean? And I think a lot of the time we approach the word of God in the same way that we approach everything in our lives, which is, What can I get out of it? Rather than asking, how can I obey it?
So do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Do you believe that the Bible was God-breathed, that when you're reading it, you're actually reading words that were written on the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit, and they're not Paul's words, and they're not Samuel's words, and they're not David's words, and they're not Jeremiah's words or Isaiah's words, but they're actually God's words. I get passionate about this. Because we want to know Jesus, but we don't want to read what it says about him. We want to imagine him for ourselves in our own image. We make ourselves Jesus. We make ourselves God. But what does the word say about him? We have to defend the truth. Because there are churches that are starting to say that the Bible contains the word of God, but that it isn't in its fullness the word of God. You see what that does? That means that I get to decide which parts of this are God and which parts are not. And which ones do you think I'll choose? The ones that suit me. I like the good bits. But I don't like the stuff about obedience. Are we willing to defend the truth? Because it matters. Because when people come into right believing about Jesus, their life changes. When people come into the truth of the gospel, their life changes. We defend the truth not for our own sense of self-righteousness or entitlement or, oh, we've got it right and other people have got it wrong. That's not what it's about at all. We defend the truth because if we defend it, it allows people to walk in it. And if people walk in the truth in the way of Jesus, they will experience a freedom and a life like nothing else they could understand. And so we walk in the truth. So how do we walk in the truth? How do we apply this teaching, which got very heavy for 13 verses? How do I love in truth? How do I celebrate truth? How do I defend truth in my own life? I think it comes back to this. It's verse 5 and 6. And John writes, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you, you, as her, sorry, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. To walk in truth, I think, means that we must walk according to what Jesus commands. To walk according to his great command to love one another, remembering that his definition of love in John 15 is to lay down your life for others. To walk in truth, we have to learn how to love. And how do we learn how to love? We read the Bible. Hold on to the truth of the gospel of Christ and who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Don't believe in half-truths, purple cats, if you will. There's a pastor in America called Nathan Finocchio, and he says, while we can't know God exhaustively, we can know him accurately. You can spend your whole life studying the word of God, and you won't ever get to the depths of who God is, but you can get accuracy about who he is and about what he likes 
about how he would like you to worship him, about how he would like you to respond to him. We can do as the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 29 to 32. And it says, Keep me from deceitful ways, be gracious to me, and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes. Lord, do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. To say you're a Christian without reading the Bible is like saying you're an athlete, but you don't play sport. It just doesn't make any sense. To say you're a Christian, but you don't seek to find out who Christ is. Who are you following? What are you believing in? So we read the word. And this you're like, oh, that's just every Sunday school talk ever. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It starts at the start. Read the word and pray. That's step. That was, they're not steps, but that's the next thing. Pray. Commune with God. Be in a constant two-way conversation. Listen to him. Turn your thoughts to him. Give your day every day to him. Trust him with your family. Trust him with your romantic interests. Trust him with your work. Trust him with your pets. Trust him with everything. I've been learning what it means to trust God with a daughter. And that's hard. That's really making me ask the question, do I believe that God is good? So it's real. You know, it is real. And be in Christian community. Spend time together. Be in a life group. Connect closely with a few people and go deep and get real about the real things. We're not made to be on our own. So we walk in truth, I believe, by remembering and reminding ourselves of the command to love one another not in human power or might, but in loving like Jesus loved, laying down our very lives, agreeing with the Father and his ways, obeying him, and humbly submitting and learning to walk in that pattern. And I think as we do that, we'll be able to love in truth, celebrate truth, and defend the truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are truth. You are true. You are good. You have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us who you are. And Lord, for some reason, we want to picture you as other things. We want to bend you into our image. Lord, don't let us do that. Lord, we repent of the ways we've made it about us. We repent of the ways we've approached your word, asking the question, what can I get out of this? Instead of asking, what does this mean and how do I obey it? Lord, thank you that your ways are higher. Thank you that you are good and merciful and just and true. Lord, the way that our culture is geared tells us that life is about us and it's really hard to get out of that thinking 
It's really hard. We need your help. We need your help to love others. We need your help to lay our lives down. We need your help to not make every single thing we do about us. So Lord, please help us. Show us a better way. Help us to walk in your pattern of self-sacrificial love. Help us to uphold the truth in a society that doesn't believe in truth. Lord, we can only learn to love one another when we understand your incredible love for us. That you laid down your rights. You laid down your preferences and in obedience, in humility, in submission to the Father, you went to the cross. You took our place. And you rose again in glory. And Lord, help us to walk in that resurrection life you've given us and help us to look forward to you coming again. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it. As we sing now, we'll have people sort of in the back corner over there to pray with you if you would like prayer for anything. And that that can be a response out of the sermon. It can be a response to God. It can be a response to maybe things that have been going on in your week. But I also encourage you to sing in response. Let your heart cry in response. I encourage you to pray in response yourself. We'll pray with you and stand with you in faith. But if God's doing something in here, then you can let that out as well. So let's stand, let's sing, let's be encouraged by the good, gracious, loving, true God that we serve. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.